Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennium Money Medical. My name is Dev Raga and I'm your host and in this episode, I have a bunch of questions from listeners which I'll go through individually. Some of the topics I've explained in very much detail in their own dedicated episodes, but I'll reference those again in this episode and I'll also go through some of the basic concepts again. We can't do this podcast without the support of Altus Financial. If you're anything like me, you will understand that us medical professionals often have unique financial affairs from taxation minimization requirements, multiple entities for accounting, or asset protection for the extra risk we take on. Altus Financial understands these issues and more. Whether you're established in your career with a solid income and looking for next steps, or you're after advice about buying into a practice, Altus Financial is for medical professionals who want to feel good about their finances. To speak with Altus Financial about your situation, click the link in the show notes or head to altusfinancial.com.au forward slash M3M. Let's get started. Now, if you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, don't forget the three main aims, education, empowerment and entertainment. So let's get started without much delay. Question one comes from Anon who asks, what asset classes should always be included in a well-diversified portfolio? That's a good question. And it's a fairly tricky one. And I'm going to say to answer this question, this is what you need to consider. And that is your risk profile. And to conduct a risk profile, you need to have these parameters handy. Number one, you need to have a look at your age, assuming your health is very good. Number two, you have a look at your stage of life. Number three, Do you have dependents? And if so, how many? Number four, your personal tolerance for volatility. Number five, your investing runway. That is, how long do you want to be investing for? And number six, your capacity to earn an income. Now, once you have all of these parameters, you can conduct a basic risk profile. Now, there are many online profile calculators out there, which you can use as an example. And those calculators will have all of these parameters in one way or another. Now, the thing about investing is there is no one size fits all. Now, I'm not trying to be difficult by not answering this question directly, but I just want everyone to understand that personal finance and investing is very personal. Having said this, if you ask me my personal view, this is what I'd say. I think everyone should at least consider the stock market. The stock market is the number one tool we have to beat inflation in terms of returns and get the highest returns possible consistently over the long term. Now, 
some years it's down, some years it's up, and some years it's flat. But if you have a look at the historical performance of most major stock markets in the world, they have gone up. Now, of course, there's always these people that have this rebuttal about the Japanese stock market, that it hasn't reached its market peak from the 80s. And that's this constant rebuttal that I get. Hey, what about the Japanese stock market? Well, let's take a look at that closely. The Nikkei 225 is the major stock market index of Japan. It peaked on the 29th of December 1989 at 38,957 points. It was founded in the 1950, so it has existed for around 72 years. So what would have happened if you started investing in the Nikkei 225 index from the peak all the way up until September 2021, which is where the data that I have ends. So if you'd invested in December 1989, when it peaked, until September 2021, which is around 32 years, your return would have been only 4.25% total. Now, with an annual return of about 1.43% with dividends reinvested. If you adjusted that for inflation, your actual return is negative 2.28% with an annualised return of negative 1.01% with dividends reinvested. That's not good. The same time, if you'd invested in the US stock market or even in the Australian stock market, your returns would have been much higher and much better than that. So point taken. What if you started investing in the Japanese stock market before the peak? What happens if you started just 10 years earlier from 1989? So you started in 1979. Again, December 1979, to September 2021. Now, your returns would have been 5.72% total with annualised returns of about 7.07% with dividends reinvested. You adjust that for inflation, that's around 3.86%. It's still not great, but it's much better than negative 2.28% in the previous period. Now, supposing you started investing even earlier, maybe from 1950, since the inception of the Japanese Nikkei 225. If you did that, your returns would have been 10.2% total returns with annualised returns of 13.228% with dividends reinvested. And you adjust that for inflation, now we're talking 9.45% annualised. You see what I'm getting here is The longer you stay invested, the earlier you start, you still made money in the Japanese stock market. And this even accounts for the peak of their stock market. So, fine. Let's say you didn't invest that long ago. Let's say you just invested in the 2000s, which is more realistic. What would have happened if you started investing in 2000, just before the Asian financial crisis? If you did that, your total returns would have been just 3.98% with annualised returns of 5.665% with dividends reinvested. You adjust that for inflation, your returns are 3.39%. That's pretty dismal. But what if you started in 2010? 
your returns total of 7.85% with an annualised return of 9.91% with dividends reinvested and you adjust that for inflation, you get a hefty 7.71% return, which isn't too bad. Essentially, what I'm trying to say is pick any time frame, extend it for as long as possible, and you will find that the stock market is likely your best tool to become wealthy in the long run. So the answer to this question is, you need to take a very good hard look at the stock market based on your risk profile. You can't ignore it. And it must be included, in my humble view, in anyone's diversified portfolio to consider your long-term wealth building strategy and also to consider your portfolio to be well diversified. And I hope, Anon, this answers your question. Question two comes from Marika MK, who asks, borrowing to invest, such as the NAB equity builder. Now, I've done an episode uh, back in episode 49 in my past life as DevRaka Personal Finance, where I discuss leverage versus margin. Borrowing to invest is not a bad strategy, but you need to understand the risks and benefits. And borrowing to invest is called leverage. So why is it called leverage? Think about a lever. It's a rigid bar, which is fixed to a pivot point. This helps to move heavy loads from point one to point two. You can also use a seesaw as an example at your local park to try this out. The middle bit, where the seesaw is anchored to, is called the fulcrum. Why is this important? Well, it provides a mechanical advantage. Think about it like this. You have a spanner, which is used to untighten nuts and bolts. The longer the spanner you'll find the effort required to untighten the nuts and bolts is actually quite less. And this is basic high school physics. Now, let's get back to the financial principle of leverage. You're borrowing money, using it to buy investments, which may appreciate, provide an income, which is in excess to the borrowing costs. In other words, you're taking the risk by using someone else's money to invest in assets to make more money. For this privilege, you will pay costs associated with the borrowings called interest payments. Now, personally, I don't like debt, and I try and minimise it as much as possible. In personal finance, if you have non-deductible debt, that is, debt which is not tax-deductible, you've got to try and reduce it as much as possible, as quickly as possible. If you have deductible debt, essentially you're using taxpayers' money to try and maximise this as much as possible in the hope of investing that debt into assets, which will make you more money in the long run. Now, what is NAB Equity Builder specifically? Now, I've got to be careful about what I say here, and I'm not recommending any financial product. This is more about learning about what this particular financial product is. First of all, they're not really accepting any more applications due to their popular demand. Now, I could be wrong. You might need to contact NAB about this, but when I looked this up, I don't think they're actually accepting new applications. And essentially, it's exactly the same principles of borrowing money to buy an investment home, except instead of buying a home, you're buying equities. But you can't just buy individual equities with their loans. You can only buy managed funds or ETFs. Now, I've discussed this in episode 33, what's the difference between managed funds and ETFs? Or you can buy LICs, listed investment companies. I've discussed that concept way back in episode 36 Or you can buy what's called SMAs, which is separately managed accounts. I haven't actually discussed this in the past, so something may, I may need to do that in future episodes. 
So those are the types of investments that you can actually buy using the NAB Equity Builder. So what's the big deal with the NAB Equity Builder? Why is it so popular? Well, the big deal is they don't care if the value of your investments crash. It has no bearing on their loan. This is very unlike margin loans, where you'll be required to cover your margin calls if your investments crash. With NAB Equity Builder, you just have to pay the variable principal and interest loan repayments. As long as you do that, they'd be happy. Now, what happens if you can't pay it? What happens if you miss a payment? Then they will sell the portion of investments to cover those payments. They want their money. So it's kind of like a margin call, but it's based on inability to pay the repayments rather than anything to do with the investment values. Not also, they're using the investments as security for the loan, just like a bank uses your home as security for the mortgage. So the principles between borrowing money to invest in property and the NAB Equity Builder is very, very similar. There are specifics which are mentioned in their website and the PDS, which I think it's useful if you're interested to go back and read up on that. Now, the important thing is you can't use NAB Equity Builder, as far as I'm aware, to trade using NAB Trade. They're completely separate. So what happens if they sell some investments to pay the repayments? Well, you lose those investments. And if there's any capital gains, then it's on you. You still have to pay the capital gains implications. That includes taxation. So to answer this question, is it risky to borrow money to invest? The answer is yes. Is it for everyone? No. Is it always a bad idea to borrow to invest? Absolutely not. And again, back to what I explained with question one, it all depends on your risk profile. So the sooner you build it, the better you can answer these questions for yourself. Question three from Justin Brown, who asks, Hi, Dave, I have an enormous hex or help debt. I understand that it's a loan that should not be paid off early as it rises with CPI and has no interest charged on it. However, I would like to learn more about the impact this will have on borrowing for my first home. Justin, great question. Now, Justin, I just wanted to clarify your point about quotation, I understand that it is a loan that should not be paid off early. Now, just about that, any loan can be paid off early, and you quite correctly point out should not be paid off early. Now, you can pay off your HEX or HELP debt early if you want to, but should you? That's your question, right? So, let's highlight the concept which everyone should understand here, and the concept is called opportunity cost. Now, let me tell you a story, which is a personal one. I was talking to a senior doctor one day who used the words opportunity cost. This was during my surgical years. I'm pretty sure I was assisting the surgeon in the private when the anaesthetist was the one that introduced me to this concept. And the anaesthetists are the people behind those curtains uh, on the other side of the surgeon. And the surgeons would say that's the boring side, while the anaesthetist would say that's the exciting side or the most important side. But uh, to be honest, they're, they're the people that probably don't get much credit for any operation because a lot of focus is on the surgeon. But the anaesthetist is the person that kind of keeps you alive behind the curtains. You know, they've got a tube in your trachea, they ventilate, they make sure your blood pressure, your heart rate, everything's okay. They're monitoring your ECG. So they probably do deserve some credit for most operations that happen around Australia. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, the surgeon gets all the credit for... Uh, uh, I don't know if that's right or wrong thing, but basically they introduced me this to this concept called opportunity cost. Now, 
I asked him what that means and he explained it like this. When you use money to do something with it, you'll always miss out on doing something else with it. That is opportunity cost. And you can use the principle in finances, but you can also use the principle in time. So let's get back to this question from Justin about hex and help debt. Now, it's usually interest-free. I agree. And this is basically a gift from the taxpayer to enable you to study and get a tertiary education. Now, personally, I thank the Australian taxpayer for enabling me to study medicine, because if I had to pay the full fees, I don't think I could have afforded it, nor could my family without borrowing huge amounts of debt. And I don't want to get into the political or philosophical sort of ideas here, but let's think about this concept for a moment. A family who arrives to Australia as first-generation immigrants, the children obtain an education as minimal cost, which the Australian taxpayer funds, such that the children achieve higher studies, hopefully get better jobs, and pay lifelong taxes, which is basically my story and my family's story. And my taxes are multiples of what the Australian taxpayer paid to make me a doctor. So that's an investment which has paid dividends and returns to the Australian taxpayer. That is a phenomenal return. So it's a system which works and it must be protected. And personally, I don't care who you are and where you're from, to get an education should not be expensive or prohibitive and everyone should have the right to it. doesn't matter what level of education. And I think it's just a fundamental human right in my humble view. Now, we're in a very lucky situation in Australia where average citizens can afford tertiary education or vocational education. Unlike in America, where you are laden with student debts and high interest rates. Now, we do have some North American listeners. So just so that they understand the concepts here, the Australian Student Loans Program doesn't have interest to it but it adjusts for inflation every year. In other words, the value of the debt remains the same. And this is because the Australian taxpayer does not make a profit from lending you a loan to get higher education. Now, at this point, my American colleagues are probably stunned. And I did say this right. The Australian Student Loan Program is a not-for-profit scheme which enables students to get a higher education at an affordable cost. So if you have other debts which do have interest on them, absolutely pay them off first before thinking about HEX or health debt. If you don't have other tests, what happens if you do pay off your HEX or help debt? Nothing. You're now fully debt free. But you've used your money, which could have been used to invest or do other things to grow your wealth, to pay off your help debt. That is an opportunity cost. Everyone needs to understand that. Now, to the crux of the question, though, the second part of the question for Justin is, how will it impact on borrowing your home loan? And the simple answer is, yes, it does affect your borrowing capacity because it affects your repaying capacity. And this is because, and again, for Australians, we all sort of grow up with the system, but for overseas listeners, I'll just got to break it down. This is because the HEX and HELP student loan program is repaid after you earn above a certain income threshold, which currently sits at $47,014. So if you had other debt, they'll consider that too. And some lenders will use what's called a DTI system, which is debt to income ratio system. So if you have a massive HEX or HELP debt, yes, it'll impact on your ability to borrow uh, a loan, any loan, and that includes your home loan. 
So I think it's wise to shop around with various lenders and there's no one way to think about HEX or help debt will affect your borrowing capacity. It depends on the lender. It depends on how much of a debt that you have. And it also depends on how that lender considers that debt to be important or not. But here are my four tips if you're concerned about this in addition to speaking to a mortgage broker. Pay off your HEX debt, but know that it's an opportunity cost. Have a bigger deposit, which means you need to borrow less for your home. That's easier said than done. Know what your borrowing power is. Play around with borrowing power calculators. I think it's important to know that. And don't forget about first-home buyer schemes. Um, I discussed this at episode 110 uh, as a Q&A topic. And at the time of recording this episode, which is basically two days after the national budget's been released, I think there is some policies in there for first-home buyers, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know what they are. I think the first-home buyer grant has been expanded a little bit, but maybe you need to do some more research on that. But there are some first-home buyer grants and schemes around as well. So you need to think about that. So hopefully, Justin, that sort of answers that question about HEX, HELP. I went a bit crazy philosophical political there as well. And for our North American listeners, your student debt crisis is uh, next level. Um, and, you know, without getting too crazy about it, um, I can't believe some of you are paying 7, 9, 10% interest on your student loans. Um, but in Australia, there's no interest. It's all based on CPI. It's all based on inflation. Question four. Campbell asks, I'm interested to know what are some of the things to look out for when being a practice owner, including the risks of equity purchase when it comes to allied health practices? That is a great question. And Campbell, if I may, I will dedicate a whole episode to this topic in next week's episode. I think the answer to this is so long and complex and I really wanted to get into the debts and details of practice ownerships and buying into a practice. So stay tuned for that one and anyone else interested in this concept. I don't think there's too many differences between owning an allied health practice uh, versus a medical practice, for example, but I think you'll be interested in... um, listening to that one. So I'll, I'll, I'll do a dedicated episode for you, Campbell, next week about some of the nitty gritties of a practice ownership and some of the risks associated with it and some of the good things about it as well. Question five uh, comes from Fiona Sheriff who asks, anything specific for healthcare workers that they need to look out for regarding life insurance and income protection insurance? Uh, great question. And here's why. Healthcare workers, as the pandemic has clearly highlighted, often work under extreme stress levels. And I don't know the specifics for non-doctor healthcare workers too much, but definitely for doctors, it's not uncommon to work 80 to 100 hours per week in some specialties. And recently, you know, I worked 12 to 15 hours uh, with a nurse without a break. Not uncommon. Now, healthcare workers often work with patients in direct contact, mostly, Uh, although telehealth um, is something that's expanding in Australia, which is good for patients that are not able to get to see uh, their healthcare workers. Um, But mostly it's to direct contact, which means invasion of physical space. uh, And also that comes with its own inherent risks. So what are the risks for healthcare workers, you know, when it comes to personal insurance? What are some of the things you need to think, think about? When you work for long hours, you tend to neglect your own health predisposing you to diseases, leading to poor diets, etc. Now, if you're listening to this, this may be relatable. Supposing you're a nurse or any healthcare worker that's now on the floor working for 10, 12, 15, 16 hours at a time. 
And you think to yourself, well, I'm checking the urine output and I'm charting the urine output for my patient, but when was the last time I actually went to the toilet to pass urine? Um, I know it's a little bit for non-healthcare workers that might come across as really odd, but that's a real story. I mean, you sort of think to yourself, I haven't actually had water or any liquids now for about six hours and I'm probably in pre-renal failure as I am checking the renal output of or urine output of my patient. So it's not uncommon that people tend to care more about for their patients than their own health. And this is one of the problems when you work for long hours. The second thing is the data shows that healthcare workers suffer back and other musculoskeletal injuries due to their work more often than construction workers. And this is particularly true for nurses and paramedics who are constantly lifting patients. So the claims for back and musculoskeletal injuries from nurses and paramedics is far higher than for construction workers. And that's probably because in healthcare, the emphasis on back protection and safely doing things is probably not as advanced as what it is in construction workers uh, industry or what it is in other fields like engineering or factory fields. So it is something that healthcare is catching up to. There's a lot of OHS safety issues that's come about in the last sort of 10 or 20 years. But I found that data really, really interesting. Now, of course, being a healthcare worker means physical contact, which means there is an inherent higher risk of bloodborne diseases such as hepatitis and HIV. And there's also higher risk of chemical hazards, physical hazards, and psychological hazards. And the mental health among healthcare workers is a real concern. And the data is very clear. Female nurses are the highest risk within the healthcare sector for death by suicide. The most common method is poisoning. That's a harrowing statistic. uh, And it's very sobering. So those are all of the risks that healthcare workers face. So here are some specific coverage, which I think is really important. Number one, needle stick injuries. Most insurers offer this as an option, and I think it's important to take up that option, particularly if you're working with needles. Also think about other contagious conditions. Now, in 2020, some insurance made it a sticking point that COVID-19 infection will not be covered for any new policies. But I think that didn't go down well, and I'm pretty sure that policy has been reversed by many of the insurers relatively quickly. Number two, in some healthcare professions, your ability to work being positive for bloodborne viruses is very limited. Often you may need to disclose it to your employer if it impairs your ability to work as part of the disclosure required when you sign up for new employment. Now, it gets tricky because bloodborne viruses is a privacy issue. Whether you're Hep B, C or HIV positive is your business. You may need to seek indemnity insurance advice about this or whether it's compulsory to disclose it to your employer. And you need to think about specific coverage for mental health via insurance policies. I think that's really vital. Healthcare workers often get exposed to things that may haunt them forever. Death, violence, disaster medicine, and sometimes injuries which are quite severe. So um, I think mental health coverage um, is really, really important. At this point, I was going to tell you a really gross story, but um, I probably won't. Uh, If you want to know about that gross story of what I've seen in healthcare feel free to uh, private message me and I'm happy to tell you that. But uh, there was one incident when I was working at the RMH um, when I was doing trauma and uh, yeah, that was uh, not, a, not a good experience for the patient and it wasn't a good experience for all the uh, healthcare workers uh, that worked 
really well together to try and uh, save this patient. Um, but uh, yeah, I was going to explain it, but it's probably not appropriate for the podcast. So I'll just move on. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of information uh, about some of the things that you need to look out for, Fiona, when you're looking for insurance, particularly life and income protection insurance uh, for healthcare workers. That's a really good question, actually. So well done. Now, the next question, which is question six, is from Anonymous and also Michelle, because two people asked very, very similar questions. Uh, I'm going to break this up into two parts. Part A is preparing for maternity leave. And this leads to the next question, which is part B, uh, thinking about financial planning with young dependents, uh, which I suspect they're talking about financial planning with young children. Now, let's address part A first, which is maternity leave. Now, there are some basic fundamental rights in Australia if you're an employee and in terms of pregnancy or having a child. Number one is paid parental leave. Number two is adoption leave. Number three is special maternity leave, which basically relates to pregnancy-related illness and complications or unexpected loss of a child during pregnancy. Number four is a safe job while being pregnant. Your employer needs to provide a safe environment for you to work in if you are pregnant. That's in any industry. Number five is the right to return to your job after your leave. That's your maternity leave. Now, this is an interesting question and one which I can't really answer from personal experience because I haven't really had paternity leave or paid parental leave. It kind of didn't exist when we had our kids, I don't think. Um, But I think paternity leave only really has come around in the last sort of five, maybe to seven years, I think. Uh, But certainly, you know, maternity leave has been around for a long time. But obviously, I I haven't had to take that because I didn't need it. I've got a stay-at-home partner who um, doesn't work, so we kind of didn't need it. They were fortunate enough to be able to stay at home and look after the kids. And I think there are two main possibilities here, and that is public versus private sector. Now, at this stage, I think it's important to visit the Fair Work website and learn about paid parental leave. In the public sector, you are entitled to paid parental leave as per the Enterprise Bargaining Agreement and Award. And I think the term is more parental leave rather than just maternity leave. Uh, And it literally pays to read and understand the EBA, the Enterprise Bargaining Agreement. I would also recommend to join your union if you have one. I'm a member of the AMA, which is the Australian Medical Association, not because I'm some sort of ruthless unionist, but I want to find out what I'm eligible for, what entitlements I should get, and how to keep health networks accountable. AMA is who I turn to to provide me with advice about pay issues, workplace issues, entitlements, and any disputes. And thankfully, personally, I haven't had to use them too much. Now, in the private sector, I'm not sure how that all works, uh, particularly if you're a small business, uh, but I suspect there is some sort of baseline eligibility. And some employers, you know, will pay a usual wage. Other employers may utilise the National Paid Parental Leave Program, um, which is paid at national minimum wage. And ultimately, if your employer have their own policy on this, it should meet or exceed the national policy. They can't give you something which is lower than what you are entitled to according to the national minimum standards. Now, in both cases, it's important to plan your child to ensure you're financially not disadvantaged in any significant way. And certainly in the healthcare sector, 
public sector, especially the paid parental leave scheme is quite flexible. I've seen parents return to work early. I've seen parents take a long time to return to work, perhaps just work one or two days a week initially, etc. And having a good working relationship with your employer is absolutely critical. Now, the other aspect of this question is, how do you financially prepare for a period in your life where income earning capacity is limited? Um, Now, parental leave can be up to 12 months, some paid, some unpaid as well. Here are my top tips to prepare for this time. Number one, you've got to know your rights and entitlements, which means understanding the paid parental leave system. Number two is you've got to ensure you don't overcommit prior to and get rid of any consumer debts. I would strongly advise all people who are considering a child or having a child or adopting a child, whatever it is, please do not have consumer debt before. Get rid of it. Number three is it's a really exciting time in your life, so don't miss out. Being prepared doesn't have to be a negative experience or a chore. Number four is calculate your liabilities monthly and see if you can meet them based on your entitlements during leave. If you do, or if not, start saving now so you can meet them when the baby arrives. Number five is, do you really need all those subscriptions? Think about gym memberships and Netflix and all that sort of stuff. Think about monthly outgoings and try and minimise them. Number six is, you've got to plan for increased grocery bills, nappies, formula if not breastfed or in addition to breastfeeding or top-up feeds, clothes for children. They can be expensive depending on your tastes. I remember when we had our kids, we went to a store called Baby Bunting, which is in Victoria. I don't know if they have it in other states. We loved Baby Bunting. It was a really nice place to shop. And the excitement is that we bought everything under the sun for our firstborn. But we bought good quality things, which we still use for our second child today. So we spent once, we spent wisely, and we made it last. That was our strategy. Number seven is think about all the medical costs. If you're considering private health, having a child outside of the public health system can be expensive, obstetrician fees, hospital costs, premiums, etc. They can be quite significant. I'd probably uh, plan for about $10,000 in terms of your antenatal care if you're going into the private system. Most obstetricians, I probably say, would charge around six dollars to $8,000 up front for that experience. Uh, But of course, you get to choose your doctor, you get to choose your hospital, you get to choose your private um, suite, whatever you want to do. Most hospitals now have basically independent rooms and you don't share rooms with other people, which I think is a nice thing. Uh, It's not really a standard in most public hospitals, uh, but certainly in private hospitals, that seems to be the gold standard. Although I think a lot of the newer public hospitals, renovated wards and stuff, I think they do have independent rooms for a lot of public patients. So, you know, um, but it's not like guaranteed or anything like that. Number eight, if you're a blended family, think about wills, estate planning. So things can get quite confusing if you are. So, um, you know, you don't want to do that later on, do it early, plan for it now. Now, fundamentally, the principles of finance never change. You got to plan, you got to plan, you got to plan, you got to execute. This is no different for planning for a child. And as for financial planning with young dependents, again, the principles are the same. You need to factor in costs associated with young dependents and think about schooling, clothing, food, activities outside of school. Here are some of the costs that you will need to factor in in planning for children, which is part of part B of this question. You know, how do you financially plan with young dependents? Now, I looked at the stats. The bare minimum cost of raising a child in Australia was around $170 per week. This was about four years ago when I got my hands on the data. 
you're probably closer to about $200 per week in today's dollars. And the estimates of cost of raising a child from age zero to age 18 ranges from $160,000 at the cheapest to about $550,000. Now that depends on the income levels of families and expectations, and that's a great deal of variability. And that doesn't include private school fees. So if you want to send your kids to private school, you're looking at about $750 to a million dollars by the time they turn 18. So this all depends on you know which studies you want to look at and the type of raising that you want to have for your kids, etc. Now, in terms of hard data, this is the breakdown of costs assuming two children in a family with two adults, bare minimum aimed at low-income families. These are the weekly costs that I came up with. Food is around $201. Clothing and footwear is around $33. Household goods and services is around $139. Transportation was around $145, although with fuel prices, I think that's a lot higher now. Healthcare is around $24. Remember that outpatient healthcare in Australia is largely not funded by the taxpayer uh, due to the Medicare freeze. Um, State-based funding is only for hospitals. So Medicare is a federally funded program. And there's been a lot of talk about Medicare rebate freezes, which means patients are having to fork out more money when they see their healthcare worker. Personal care is around $35. Recreation, $77. And that's not including any extracurricular activities at school, like music or sports. That's bare minimum. Uh, Education costs of $61 and housing costs of about $458. Not, you know, that's not unusual housing costs do uh, form the bulk of the cost of living issues. Now, this is basically what the data that I got, and that's a weekly average cost for low-income families of around $1,173. Now, the national weekly minimum wage per person is around $772.60 for 38 hours per week. So that gives you a bit of perspective. Kids are expensive and you can't measure everything in dollars though. I have to say, there's nothing that's more satisfying than seeing the kids excited about a recent welcoming of a puppy into the family. So remember, the underlying philosophy in all this is money is a tool. It doesn't buy happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but more importantly, the lives of people around you better. But hopefully, for the people that uh, asked this question, which was Anon and Michelle, preparing for maternity leave, Uh, and financial planning with young dependents, hopefully that provides them with a little bit of information about how to go about doing it and some of the things to consider cost-wise for raising children. Question seven. Suzanne Jane asks, how to have creative ways to invest for retirement and how to retire early? And this piggybacks on a question from Anon who says, how to set up for retirement on a basic income of $150,000 for a family That's a pretty good income. So well done. Someone was telling me recently that in Australia, you're considered a low income earner if you have a combined family income of less than $120,000 per year. I don't know if that's true or not. So if you've read that and you have some reference points, uh, feel free to contact me. But I thought $120,000 per year is actually quite a decent income, but I could be wrong. But in this particular case from Anon, $150,000, I think that's a pretty decent income. So well done to you. And that's a really great question, Suzanne, as well. But here's the deal. You don't need to be creative to invest and definitely don't invest creatively. I speak to a lot of healthcare workers, most of whom are actually doctors and doctors earn a pretty good income. And sometimes it's this creativity of investments, which gets them into trouble. 
All of us don't need trust funds to invest, that's for sure. So yes, I know the question asked about creative ways to earn an income, but in my experience, keeping your you know, retirement strategy as simple and as boring as possible has often led to the best outcome for a lot of people. Recently, I put out a post uh, about a couple in their 60s who have amassed a wealth of about $9.5 million. They're both engineers. They're not doctors. They're not healthcare workers. They didn't do anything spectacular. They just kept investing from the early 90s all the way to now, and um, they made a lot of money. They kept it very, very simple. So, you know, here's my five-step plan, which I talk about all the time. Number one, you got to pay yourself first. You're the most important person in your life. Number two, you need to take that money and invest it into something that you know and understand or you want to understand. Number three is that investment must produce dividends, which needs to be reinvested, preferably automatically. Number four is you got to do it for the long term, which means starting now. Long term is minimum 20 years, in my opinion, not five, 10 or 15 years. Basically, start it as soon as possible and do it forever. And always automate it. That's number five. So it happens in the background. Let's use an example to highlight these common principles. Suzanne is an optometrist. That's right, Suzanne. I've just made you an optometrist who earns an income of about $90,000 per year plus super. She is 28 years old and she has no debt except for hex payment, which is factored into her salary. What should Suzanne do? She should take 20% of our after-tax income and put it aside, and that equates to about $976 per month. She should invest it straight away, preferably into something very broad and something that she knows and understands in. Suppose she chose to invest in a broad market ETF, which charges approximately 0.25% in management fees. And number three is she should just reinvest all those dividends automatically and do it for the long term. Now, she decides at the age of 28 that she wants to do this up until the age of 68, which is around 40 years. Now, that's assuming that she enjoys her work and she loves working until that age. She may not need to. And she just automates it. She just uses brokers, which allows for this. Now, here's a few caveats. Let's pause for a second here. Number one is she never gets an increase in pay in her lifetime, which is very unlikely. Number two is she doesn't get super. Number three is there's no other investments. She doesn't do anything else. That's all she does. This is very unlikely. And to factor all of this in, I've also included no paid parental leave, no spousal income if she decides to get married or live with a partner. So there's a lot of unknown variables here. And it's a pretty bare bones situation, a worst case scenario. How much money would Suzanne have at the age of 68? She'd have about $2.26 million if she assumes a 7% growth. That accounts for management fee of 0.25% per annum. Now, she'd have $2.94 million if she assumes 8% growth, and this factors in a relatively high expense ratio of 0.25%. And that's not bad for someone earning $90,000 all of her life and never got a pay rise. So, Suzanne, I'm going to be boring and say you don't need to be creative. Just do the basics right and build those foundations early, work on those financial behaviours, and the chances are you're going to be fine in your retirement. Why do I say that? Even in retirement? Because let's say if Suzanne made it to $2.26 million at a 7% rate of return at the age of 68 and had no other investments 
and decided to withdraw about $100,000 per year, even accounting for 3% inflation forever, she would only run out of money at the age of 124 years. So Suzanne, congrats, you did well. Now, what about inflation? Now, $2.26 million won't be worth anything in 40 years. That's what a lot of people say. That's not enough. Well, what's the alternative? Make more, invest more, keep costs low. I know I'd rather have $2.26 million compared to not having anything at all. So generally ignore the naysayers, work on a very simple strategy, revisit occasionally and perfect it over time and enjoy your financial independence so you can have a positive impact on people around you. I hope this clarifies the answer. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I will address one more question before calling it a day. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. Let's get to our last question, question eight. Simothy asks, I really do not know how to invest even if I can save to certain extents. Now, Simothy, I've done an episode 116 where I discuss the concept of savings rate versus investment returns, which is more important and why. The short answer is it all depends on what stage of the investment timeframe you are looking at. Generally speaking, savings rates early in your investing journey is far more important than investment returns early in your investment journey. Now, to answer your specific question, here it is. Once you've perfected saving, which is basically paying yourself first, you need to make that money work for you. And each year that money is not being invested means it's losing value. And this is because of the dreaded evil called inflation. I've talked about it before in specific dedicated episodes. Go back and listen to it. Remember, a small amount of inflation is always good for the economy. But it's not always good for you. So why is inflation good for the economy? I discussed this in episodes 27 and episodes 120, uh, 133, beg your pardon. So if you want to geek out, go back and listen to it. It's an eye opener. But the basic crux of the matter is inflation means your money is more valuable today than it is tomorrow. And this means you can get more goods and services with your money today than tomorrow. So money loses value over time. And this means it encourages you to spend more money rather than hoard it for tomorrow. And hopefully by spending money, this drives the economy. Consumers drive the economy. When I say pay yourself first, I mean exactly that. Once that's done, you can spend as much as you want 
knowing that your retirement future is well and secure. Now, what would happen if we didn't have inflation? Now, this means money is likely to, you know, money doesn't really lose value over time. And this likely means people don't spend money because they think it's going to increase in value. They're going to hoard it. And not spending any money is not good for the economy because the economy relies on spending to drive businesses and services. So it's a bit of a feedback loop. Now, you need ways to use your savings to beat the dreaded inflation. So you need to find out what asset classes exist. Then you need to pick an asset class which suits your risk profile. And there's that saying again, risk profile. And then you've got to go for it. Make sure you understand your investments and make sure you want to understand them well. Now, personally, for my risk profile, I'm a huge fan of the stock market. So I'm going to use it as an example to highlight how investing is made so simple. So ask yourself today, what did you do? Now, I'm a doctor, so I got up in the morning, brushed my teeth, took a shower, got dressed, had breakfast, went to work, did my work, then returned home, spent family time, hopefully, and then if I had some spare time, had dinner, watched a bit of TV, caught up on personal work, then off to bed I go, and the cycle starts again the following day. The chances are, whether you're a doctor or not, you're probably going to do most of these things. So if I'm doing it, most people are probably doing it. doesn't matter what profession you are. Now, let's look at it another way. Same doctor, same me, same Devraga. I got up in the morning, I brushed my teeth, which means I used toothpaste, brand Colgate. I took a shower, which means I'm using water utilities. I had breakfast, which means I consumed branded products, which I bought from Coles or Woolies or whatever shopping centre that I purchased from. I went to work in my car. I drive an electric vehicle. Again, I used electricity. The car is made up of metal, which requires raw materials, goods and services. I did my work using technology, medical equipment. Then I drove back again. Again, use that car. Again, use utilities. I had dinner, consumed products. Then eventually watched TV. Again, more products and services. Then I went to bed. And the following day, the cycle starts again. At every step of my day, I use businesses and services and materials. This means I'm a consumer. And those businesses are making products and services I use every single day. That is what investing is all about. If I'm doing this, you probably are too. And it's likely that, you know, five, six, seven billion people around the world are probably doing similar things. So to answer your question, what to invest in? Invest in those businesses which you use, which most people use. Now to answer the second part of the question is how do you actually do this? Here's how. When you go shopping at Coles or Woolies, now I prefer Coles, you will enter the building, pick up a shopping trolley, pick out your products, place them into the trolley, walk out, pay at the cash register and head home. Assume the Coles store is the stock market. At the entrance, assume there's a car parking fee. That's your broker. That's your entrance fee. Then you enter Coles, which presents the stock market, the products represent the companies, and the aisles may represent sectors or countries or geographies or continents or whatever it is. So think about investing each time you go shopping. When you check out, you pay for those stocks or those ETFs or those index funds or those LICs that you've now purchased off the shelf. Now, when there's a product on sale, what do you do? 
Do you walk away? Do you come back another day when the product price goes back up to normal again? Of course not. That would be mad. No one ever does this. It's madness. So when the stock market crashes, think of it like Coles is having another sale. Load up, invest consistently. That's about it. And there's not much more to this, Simothy. It's actually quite simple. Hope this simplifies things a lot more for you. And hopefully that gives you a bit of an analogy, a bit of conceptualization of what saving and what investing is all about and why inflation is a secret killer if you don't pay respect to it. Now, that's about it for this episode. Hopefully everyone has enjoyed it. Slightly longer episode, but uh, some really good questions. Uh, So really thanks for those informative questions. I'm trying to read as many questions as possible and many have similar themes. Literally, there are hundreds and hundreds of questions um, that I've had to read to come up with some of these. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform that you may be using or just leave a five-star review on all of the platforms. That would be even better. But please leave a positive review. I love reading reviews because it, you know, makes me validated. And uh, if there's any feedback, feel free to contact me via Facebook and Twitter uh, about these episodes. Uh, I'll try and accommodate as much feedback as I possibly can. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to these podcasts. So please keep them coming. This is Devraga from My Millennium Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.